Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Great to see everyone. Or if you're listening, of course, lots of you uh, listen to the show on the podcast, which we're delighted about. Um, just to get, before we start, just so you know, I do have COVID-19. Unfortunately, I was tested positive yesterday. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that a bit later on because um, we are very lucky to be joined by the Emeritus Professor Robert West. I just pronounced mispronounced the first part of that. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, but we'll be talking about the situation with the pandemic. Um, I am feeling a bit wiped out, uh, but I'm feeling much better than I did yesterday. But I'll talk about that, as I've said, in a bit. But obviously, if I was feeling too ill, I would not be doing the show. So um, my first shot has uh, almost certainly helped. And I'll talk about that as well, because there's certain anti-vaxxers who have jumped on this as per um, with their uh, total unhinged nonsense. But I am doing fine uh, as you can see, I've got my water. I'm going to stay hydrated. I'm obviously self-isolating um, uh, for ten days from the, when the symptoms began last week. Uh, but I'll talk about I'll talk about my own particular circumstances just because it's important when this happens to use your platform to make sure you don't inadvertently fuel uh, people, undermine confidence in our brilliant mass vaccination program, which we should be very proud of. But we will talk about that uh in about 10 or 15 minutes but first uh before i bring in the brilliant dawn butler and we're very lucky to have dawn butler who is of course the star of the moment having been kicked out of parliament for the heinous outrageous despicable crime of objectively stating an objective incontrovertible fact that boris johnson lies he doesn't lie once or twice, he doesn't lie just occasionally, just to spruce things up. He lies as a central element of his entire governing philosophy. And what Dunn did is read out some very striking examples of those lies. And as a consequence, she was kicked out for breaking parliamentary convention because we live in a country where to call out Tory lies is to be held to account, whilst those who are responsible for those lies get away with it. The only people held to account for conservative lies in this country are literally the people calling them out. So we will, uh, I'm about to bring you in, just not quick, quick housekeeping. Um, if you're watching this, obviously, on video, click through to YouTube. That just helps support the show. Uh, so just prick, click the YouTube link. Um, to support all the work we do in the brilliant team and the documentaries that we're going to make. We've got, we are doing a documentary about who owns Britain. It's been slightly delayed. So I've got COVID-19 and I can't leave the house. Uh, but we will be able to do that thanks to your support with our brilliant team on union, uh, uh, being paid union money 
because of your support on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. If you give three quid or whatever, that all helps us to do those, I think, documentaries we're very proud of, as well as the podcast, as well as all the interviews that we do and the whole operation. Um, and you can also support us using the, if you want to put questions to our guests using Super Chat, but you can only do that on YouTube. So click through to that. That supports the show as well. Like John McKenzie, who is a regular who's based in Hong Kong. I will read out everybody who's used Super Chat at the end and give you all a very special thanks. Do click like on YouTube um, and subscribe. Um, and because uh, that helps other people if you press like, watch the video, and also do uh, listen to the podcast. If you're not listening to the podcast, then just subscribe. Right. Uh, with all that said and done, let's just bring in the brilliant Dawn Butler, who we are very, very lucky to have. Hey, Dawn, how are you doing? Hey. Morning, Owen. Sorry you've got COVID. Um, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Not too what bad. What can you do, eh? What's going <laughs> on? You had COVID, you? You had COVID uh, No, I didn't. No. I didn't, thank goodness. I haven't. I was ill, but um, it wasn't COVID, yeah. Well, so I didn't get my anti antibodies until I got my jabs. Oh, right. Okay, so you're fully jabbed. You can't get COVID, obviously, just to clarify everybody through uh through youtube so she's not at risk so don what we're gonna do i'm just gonna put we're just gonna put a little clip up of you very courageously and honorably doing the right thing which is calling out the prime minister's lies in parliament and then facing the consequences prime minister said the economy has grown by 73 percent it's just not true reinstating nurses bursary just not true there wasn't an app working anywhere in the world just wasn't true tories invested 34 billion in the nhs not true the prime minister said we have severed the link between infection and serious disease and death not only is this not true madam deputy speaker but it is dangerous and it's dangerous to line the pandemic and i'm disappointed that the prime minister has not come to the house to correct the record and to correct the fact that he has lied to this house and the country over and over again. Order, order. I'm, I'm sure that the, um, the member will um, reflect on um, her words just saying, perhaps correct the record. Madam Deputy Speaker, what would you rather, a weakened leg or a severed leg? You know, at the end of the day, the Prime Minister has lied to this House time and time again. And it's funny that we get in trouble in this place for calling out the lie rather than the person lying. Order, order, order. Order. Can you re please, please reflect on your words and withdraw your remarks? Deputy Speaker, I've reflected on my words, and somebody needs to tell the truth in this house that the Prime Minister has lied. Under the power given me by Standing Order Number 43, I order the member to withdraw immediately from the House for the remainder of the. Incredible stuff. I mean, I have to say that the problem is almost is. I mean, look, we've had uh, the very. Uh, brilliant principal journalist Peter Oborn um, on the channel before and he's literally written a book which is kind of that thick about the lies of Boris Johnson but <laughs> the only thing is you basically got through about 0.001% of the lies but that point you made in that in that brilliant brilliant speech which you suffered the consequences for and um, that point about you that people that you're being held to account because you called out the prime minister's lies that obviously the prime minister doesn't suffer any consequences. What does that tell us about our country and our politics? Exactly. I mean, we are living in this Alice in Wonderland, you know, topsy-turvy world where the prime minister can say absolutely what he wants. 
know that it's a lie because most of the times he knows it's a lie. Sometimes he might not, but most of the times he knows it's a lie and he gets away with it. And the thing is that they've been doing this um, for the last 18 months and they've been using the pandemic as a screen to hide their authoritarian ways of dealing with our democracy. So they're trying to chip away and remove the very core of our country and that is our democracy. So the prime minister can lie, that's okay. I can't say he's a liar because that's unparliamentary. He doesn't care about parliament and he doesn't care about parliamentary rules. None of the ministers do. There was a time when if you were a minister and you were found to have been bullying civil servant, you would apologise or you would resign your position as that minister. The prime minister says, no, no, it's fine. Pretty Patel can go on. It's fine. We'll just pay off the civil servant. Matt Hancock was caught literally with his pants down, breaking the rules. Now, that would be a resigning uh, offence under any other government, not under Boris Johnson's government, because the truth doesn't matter. And so we have to call this out. You know, the Coronavirus 2020 Act, I've done a lot of work on that in terms of there are powers on the statute book that should make everybody's eyes water. You know, if you are suspected of having COVID, you can be arrested, right? Now, you have COVID, I mean, you're, you're at home, but anybody could be suspected of having COVID because it's asymptomatic. So this government could literally say, oh, I think you've got COVID, send the police to arrest you. That is actually on the statute book. I'm not making any of this stuff up. So every in every avenue you turn to say, okay, let I tell you what, we can protest about it. Well, the government has tried to put on the statute books that you can't protest if you're too noisy. What? This is crazy. This is so I just I had had enough. You know, the week started with learning about these Tory MPs who tried to uh, pervert the course of justice by influencing a judge and a sexual assault case. And three of those MPs, punishment was to be banned from Parliament for the day. I was like, what? This is, I think, what is happening to our country? You know, what is actually happening to our country and our democracy? And I just, you know, had enough, really. I mean, this is like a slightly depressing thing to say, but do you think the problem we've now got is, like, I mean, Boris Johnson himself, before he was Prime Minister, was already a proven serial liar. He was he was sacked by his party leader as a shadow minister for lying. He was sacked by his newspaper editor for lying. He falsified a quote, which is one of the worst things you can do in journalism. And if he wasn't someone from an extremely privileged background, uh, he would have uns- undoubtedly been thrown out of the media industry, but he wasn't. He was allowed to continue falling upwards. But isn't the problem we've got now is that this prime minister and his party, aided and embedded by most of the press in this country, who have a very partisan support of the Conservative Party, have just normalised lying to such an extent that there is no penalty. That, in a sense, they've just you know they've you know it's got so far that it doesn't matter if they lie anymore because they they know there is no consequence. Absolutely. And that's what they're relying on. So they rely on the rest of us to be honourable and to abide by the rules. And all the time they are taking the piss behind our backs. You know, they and this is also why we have to highlight the fact that when you allow somebody with that much privilege to fail upwards, 
constantly for there to be no consequences when you allow a group of elitist classes individuals to run our country it means that the country becomes the country becomes devoid of democracy so they have more control but it also means that those people in control can be as corrupt as they like and nobody's going to hold them to account and all of the legacy media um, made us believe that people don't care they don't care Boris lies because it's baked in to Boris Johnson the prime minister so Johnson, the prime minister, is okay. He always lies. So we know that, but he's all right. He's a good laugh. He's a bit of fun. So it's all baked in. So it's okay. And I think what happened, which also surprised me that people were feeling this way so strongly that they were tired of having to follow the rules that the prime minister and the few elitist classes, uh, corrupt ministers at the top don't, was that they've had enough too. And it made me realize how important it is that we have now uh, different media platforms, um, yourself, Byline uh, TV, Byline News, Navara Media, Double Down News. You know, it, it highlighted to me how important it was that the Good Law Project, the work that they've done, they deserve a medal. You know, they have taken this government to court. This government has been found wanted. This government has been found that they lied about contracts being in the public domain. There were a hundred contracts that were not in the public domain when the prime minister stood up in parliament and said, oh, don't worry, all the contracts in the public domain, if people want to see it, they can have a look at it. There were a hundred that were not in the public domain. You know, good the Good Law Project have highlighted, they've got, I think something like, oh, was it? I can't remember, but lots more cases to come. And what's the government doing? The irony of this, they're spending our public money defending the indefensible. So we're paying for them to defend their lies. They're paying, you know, they they spent more money defending the fact that they gave a contract to people who were not qualified than what the contract was worth. It's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And you're absolutely, I mean, Good Law Project, Jolyon Morn and his team, absolute oh, heroes for what, for what Phenomenal. Open democracy. Open there democracy. are so many, or Amnesty, Liberty. There's so many good people in this country just working hard. And I think when the history books are written, you will see all of these organisations where they will say, we tried to tell you this is where we were going and we tried to stop it. And, you know, I want to be part of the good side that said, look, I tried to highlight it and I tried to stop it by using my platform and, you know, in the the best way that I could. I mean, I've got a a couple of other questions about that and about, and about you and the the chord you've struck. I mean, before I do the the other, you know, there was another, I suppose, huge cut. You've had several huge cut through um, moments, which have really roused people, I think. But one of them was, it was last March when on national television, you again said the objective fact about Boris Johnson and his racism uh, you were on a panel debate with the MP Laura Trott, who was outraged. How could you? This is outrageous. Because again, we live in a country where calling out racism is seen as a more heinous crime than racism itself. Boris Johnson, of course, calling black people picking uh, with watermelon smiles, uh, over um, comparing Muslim women to bank robbers and letterboxes, which caused a big spike in Islamophobic crimes on the streets. Gay people called bum boys and so on. All sorts of tank top bum boys. Sorry. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I do sometimes wear, you know, on, on a Saturday. Um, I am a tank top bomboy. Um, but I mean, again, I mean, what does that, again, that's just becomes, I mean, we've seen it recently with the racism that our English, uh, the, the heroes of the English team, uh, national football team was subjected to when the government refused to condemn the booing of the English national team. And that legitimized the racism they got. But again, so few, there's people like you holding them to account, but that they're, they're being allowed, it's being legitimized. Absolutely. And deliberately so. So they've watched Trump and they've decided that this is the way we can win elections. Let's stir up some trouble. Let's, uh, let's have this kind of fake culture war, which the right use, extreme right uses all the time. You know, let's have a war on woke. You know, let's do all of this stuff and, and, and let's start creating an environment where you pitch people against each other, you know, those of us that are fighting, you know, society, fighting for our democracy. And let's just the elite few at the very top, the one percenters, let's us just take all of this wealth for ourselves and keep it for ourselves. And it's a deliberate ploy. And that's why we have to stop that's why we have to stop him. And I, you know, I think people in the UK are more um, intelligent uh, and more together and more united than this government thinks that they are. And I've always felt this. And so that's why I'm really pleased at the response, because I'm like, great. I knew that, that you know, that I knew this was so. I knew it just wasn't in Brent where we would stand up for each other, that it goes far and wide. And that um, panel that I was on, um, I was being attacked from all angles, all corners. It was just sort of just me. And it's like, Boris Johnson is not a racist. What? His language was racist? No, it was just unfortunate. It's not unfortunate. It was racist. So Dawn, what you're saying is that you're better than everybody else. Well, no, not what I'm saying is I'm not racist. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. And Boris Johnson is, you know, with his language. So, you know, it was being attacked and that's what they do. You know, when you stand up, you get attacked and then you're supposed to just cower, used in the right term, uh, Secretary of State for Health. You're supposed to just cower and let them attack you instead of standing in your power and saying, well, actually, I know I'm right. Um, and so, yeah, this this government is corrupt and it's divisive and it's led by a liar and the fish rots from their head and we have a rotten government just a couple of other quick things because i know how phenomenally busy you are at the moment but in terms of the response you get i got i'm interested to hear because I, online it's gone wild absolutely wild so i'm interested partly i'd like to know have other labor mps what have they said privately because there's not been much public response i have to say angela rayner did allude to what happened by saying that labor um that wherever he's called out Boris Johnson is, is a liar. Um, but I'm interested in the response from Labour MPs. But also that what it's what does it say, that public response? Because if I'm I'll put this to you, Dawn, I'll just say it bluntly. A lot of people don't think the Labour leadership is offering a proper um opposition at the moment to the Conservative Party. So people at the moment, whenever they see any just someone being able to stick it to the Tories, they're like, thank goodness, it's like coming up for water. That's how people feel. They're like, somewhat, someone's got the guts and the courage to do this, you know? And that's partly it. Do you not think, so I'm interested what Labour MPs do you think are thinking about it, but isn't it the case that a lot of people looked at what you did and thought, finally, there's someone in the Labour Party who's got some guts, who's going to stick it to the Tories, and that's what the Labour leadership's failing to do. 
Um, well, I feel everybody's frustration because I too am frustrated. And I mean, being a backbencher is so liberating. So, you know, I have been liberated to um, do do what I like, when I like and how I like. Um, and I am team Labour through and through. And I believe that we should be fighting for a Labour government. But we do that by outlining uh, what a Labour government would do, what we would look like, uh, how it would affect people's lives. And we do that also by calling out this corrupt, racist, enabling government. And it's frustrating that there's a lot of sort of niceties around or, you know, we are not a unity government. We are Her Majesty's official opposition. And this government needs to be held to account. It has been 19 months. In the first two months, fine. You can give the government leeway. It was a very difficult time. Nobody knew what was coming next. But I sit on the Science and Technology Committee and I can tell you that from our very first meeting about COVID and the pandemic and watching the government's press conferences, I knew they were not being straight with the people of our country. I knew it. I knew it not because I'm super clever. I knew it because I was listening to the scientists and I was reading papers and documents. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, if I'm reading this information from WHO, from the scientists, and I'm gleaning this information, why ain't you? And you've got a whole load of people working for you. And it's just me sitting in my front room, you know, reading it late into the night thinking, all oh, right, okay, that's what's going to happen next. That's what's going to happen. Next. So why isn't the government being honest about it? And I think I, 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 not even that I think, it's very clear that they had other plans and other, uh, other, you know, uh, other roads to travel, let's say, you know, and I think the corruption that's been highlighted by the Good Law Project tells you everything you need to know about this government. Last question. Now, you're probably going to hate me for this, but I don't care. I can read through the comments on both Facebook and YouTube as people are watching this. And it is literally full of people going, basically, I wish Dawn was leader of the Labour Party. Now, I know there's not a vacancy, so you can take that one away. I'm just wondering, would you ever, maybe one day, the idea of being leader of the Labour Party, is that ever something that maybe could it be? All I'm saying is a lot of people are saying it. It's literally, if I hadn't have asked you, then I would be failing in my job and there'd be some sort of riot on YouTube and Facebook because it is literally loads. I was very proud to vote for myself as uh, deputy leader. But I mean, what do you think? Would you would you ever consider being leader of the Labour Party? What's your thoughts on that? So, I mean, I when I stood to be deputy leader, I stood because I wanted to uh, change how the party, um, well, not even change, continue as we were in terms of communicating with members. I wanted to grow the party. I wanted us to have life and energy and I wanted to be a part of that. And I and I felt I could do that, you know, as deputy leader. Um, I, I have no intention of standing for leader of the Labour Party. I don't have the patience to deal with all the bullshit, to be quite frank. 
Um, so yes, I I don't know, it might get ugly. But um I <laughs> I I want I just want the party to be to be to be better. Do you know what I mean? And I, I want I want us to be better as a Labour Party. I want us to, you know, you know, every time the Conservatives say uh, the vaccine rollout has done really well and we should be, you know, we should be applauded for that. I'm like, well, the NHS is a socialist endeavour. You know, the Tories voted against it because they didn't want it, because it was socialism in plain sight. So what you're saying is socialism delivered a really good vaccine rollout. Yay. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it in a terms that people can understand that what we've done as a as a Labour Party and when we were in government is stuff that has stood the test of time and has been good for our country. And we can do that again if we get into power. Very diplomatic answer. Um, <laughs> lots of people already coming up with the slogans, a new dawn. I mean, they write themselves, really, to be honest with you. <laughs> we'll revisit it maybe some other time. But seriously, Dawn, it's been a massive, massive pleasure. You do have a massive army of fans and people, again, as I said, saw someone who stood up and said what needed to be said, got gaslit, essentially, by parliamentary procedure. Um, but the Prime Minister is a liar. He's a proven liar. He lies as we've said, as a basic instrument of political rule and governance in this country, as does his party, facilitated by much of the media. You called them out and you suffered the consequences because that's the country we live in. Uh, but it won't be, we'll one day get justice and we will be able to speak the truth. And those like yourself who stood up against Tory lies, I think will be remembered for doing the right thing, regardless of the cost. So thank you so, so much, Dawn. And uh, Look after yourself and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Zoe. You too. Take care. Take care. All right. Uh, brilliant stuff. That's what we want. Now, I'm going to bring in the... Uh, I mean, she is brilliant, isn't she? Um, I'm going to bring in now the... And I'm going to keep mispronouncing his title. It's really annoying because we rehearsed it before. Emeritus, Emeritus Professor Robert West. Robert, please correct me. I'm really sorry. I can't pronounce it. I, I, we tried. I did try. Before, <laughs> didn't I? Emeritus. Emeritus, emeritus. Emeritus. Now, Robert West is, is one of our leading COVID experts, and many of you will be familiar with his work. So we're very, very lucky to have you. So thank you so, so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'll just say quickly about my... I, I think it's important that I um, just... Met, yeah, just mention my circumstances, because you don't... I don't really... And, and, and I'll, I'll say it, and then if I get anything wrong as well, that's what's important, because I know... I, I've seen predictably some anti-vaxxer people going, oh, you've got, you've been double jabbed and you've got COVID. Um, so just, just so everyone is aware, um, I got my first Moderna shot on the 23rd of May. I got my second Moderna shot on Tuesday. A second shot, of course, takes two weeks, generally speaking, to be effective. But I was actually, I mean, I know when I was infected, I was infected um, a day and a half or so earlier than my second shot in any case. I uh, started to feel, uh, I got, uh, I felt a bit rough, a dead arm after my second shot. I actually felt the same after my first shot. Started to feel better, but then I started getting hit by symptoms again. I was a bit like, you know, obviously I've got some weird delayed symptoms. I felt wiped out and so on. By yesterday, you know, those symptoms were getting worse. I felt really wiped out yesterday. I had a slight cough, which had begun to emerge. I did a lateral flow test. It was positive. Uh, lateral flow tests aren't always completely reliable. So I did, uh, in fact, they're not. So don't rely on them. Uh, so I did a PCR test and I am indeed positive with COVID-19. Today, I actually feel 
significantly better than yesterday. Fingers crossed. My previous, over the last three days, I have felt worse in the afternoon into the evening. We'll see how that goes. My sleep last night was weird, very weird dreams. I had a dream I had smallpox anyway. Um, and, but the point is, and this is why it's important for people to know, um, the first shot of EG Moderna, which is what I have, which is an mRNA vaccine like the Pfizer jab, um, it gives some protection against symptomatic illness, but limited. And it gives greater, with caveats, coverage against serious illness, hospitalization and death. A second shot plus two weeks, which is not me until I'm afraid a week on Tuesday, that provides much higher protection, but not absolute against symptomatic illness, and also even higher protection, particularly for those with, who are vulnerable, underlying conditions, who are older, against serious illness, hospitalization, death. We know that because cases are off the charts at the moment. And um, uh, you, as you can see, I am struggling to get from one. I, I, it, that's the main problem I have, brain fog at the moment. Um, but the... Um, what was I saying? Um, what? Sorry. Yeah. So you get with a second shot plus two weeks, much higher coverage. The whole point about a vaccine, and we're very lucky with these vaccines, is that they have, after two shots in particular, including against Delta, very high levels of protection. But even then, it's not absolute. And you could, in theory, you're still at risk, particularly if you're vulnerable and have underlying health conditions of, of serious illness, but it's just much lower. So is that Robert? There we go. Sorry, I just thought I should get out my own situation. But have I got that? Have I got that roughly right? And is there anything kind of you'd add to that? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you you have, and um, uh, bear in mind that the major trials that were done with uh, the uh, the most the vaccines that we have in this country were done on not even on the beta variant, but on the one before that. Um, and the beta variant is more transmissible. The Delta variant is more transmissible still. So uh, what we have with the Delta variant is, is already um, a variant that is showing some degree of vaccine escape. And vaccine escape is the thing that we most fear because uh, you know, if, if we get a significant vaccine escape with new variants, then you know, we're kind of almost back to square one and no one wants that. So we'll come back to that because of the issue of variants and what the government's policy is is putting at risk us at risk of more variants of this kind. Um, you know, it's it's a really important topic. Um, figures vary, but just to give your uh, viewers a sense of where we are with the sort of figures you are talking about. But with the Delta variant, the prevalent one in the UK at the moment, to my mind, the best evidence, uh, the best estimate is probably around fifty percent effectiveness at preventing a PCR infection, in other words, a detectable infection, probably around 70% uh, protection against hospitalization, and probably between 80 and 90% protection against uh, death. So the, it is the case uh, that uh, with the vaccination program, the link between infection and hospitalization and death has been weakened. Um, that, is, that is true, um, but it also gives some protection. And the other thing is that the vaccine does appear, and this is something we didn't know at the beginning, but it does appear to be the case, it, it protects other people from getting infected 
uh, because it, it reduces transmission. So all in all, if it weren't for the vaccines, we would be absolutely screwed. Um, the vaccines are keeping us in at least uh, the kind of uh, uh, level of functioning as a, as a society that we've got at the moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Robert, at the moment, about one in 75 people officially, myself included, have COVID-19. That's obviously, inevitably, we don't know how much and underestimate because there aren't, not everyone is, is, is testing. There is anecdotal suggestion that at the moment that, that, well, we know testing has gone down and there's always the danger that some people aren't testing because of the lack of financial support, not least for people in precarious occupations uh the lack of statutory well the low the lowest statutory sick pay almost in the western world um so and also there are people who are asymptomatic which is good for them but not good for other people because they obviously more likely to spread the illness that's one of the cruelties of this and other viruses the, the point you made last week and this is what you said and it's important because obviously you you yourself you're in sage's behavioral science subgroup um so you're one of you know the the big wigs of the pandemic so to speak but what you said is what we are seeing is a decision by the government to get as many people infected as possible, as quickly as possible, while using the rhetoric about caution as a way of putting the blame on the public for the consequences. It looks like the government judges that the damage to health and healthcare services will be worth the political capital it will gain from this approach. So I suppose that's, the you know, is basically the government, do you think, as you're setting out there, consciously going for herd immunity, not obviously we want herd immunity by vaccination, but herd immunity by infection, that they, and 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 and, and I suppose to, to be devil's advocate, is that such a bad thing? I mean, some would say, well, do you want this? Do you want, we're going to have to release restrictions sometime. Do you want to do it in the winter? And if you do it then, the NHS, as we know, is going to struggle, not least actually because in the winter, um, there's, you know, lack of community protection now against, for example, influenza, because flu has been so suppressed as it's less infectious than COVID by the measures we've taken against COVID, as well as other respiratory illnesses. Uh, schools will come back then. So is it so bad? And actually, you know, is it, is you know, in a sense, better now than better, better now than then? Mm. Yeah, well, even, you know, my colleagues, uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valence uh, have argued and they, they claim that there is a scientific basis for this, although other epidemiologists and clinicians uh, dispute that, that um, this, if not now, 
than when argument has some scientific validity. Um, I don't think it does because I don't think uh, that that's the, I think it's a false dichotomy. I think that um, the idea that if we can get, um, you know, loads of people infected now, somehow it's going to be okay in the winter. And, bear, and there are concerns about other respiratory illnesses, flu and so on, uh, which will um, emerge it, it probably it, you know more than in previous years uh, in this coming winter so so that that is an issue but i don't think it is an either or i think um there's so many unknowns uh between now and then not least of which and i alluded to this a bit earlier is the emergency new variants now th this uh, uh I'll, I'll come back in a minute if i may to why mm -hmm. i said what i said and what I think the evidence is, and people can judge for themselves whether they think, whether they agree with me or whether they don't. Um, but um, this the issue of, uh, of new variants is terribly important because we've already had in this country two seriously damaging new variants. First of all, with the what is now called the alpha variant, and now obviously with the delta variants, and that's in the space of eighteen months, and uh, that's with infection rates quite substantially under control not not through the ideal method through uh, uh you know because they've been using lockdowns to do it uh, but at, at least they've uh, you know managed to keep a bit of a lid on it if we let a thousand flowers bloom the statistical probability of getting another variant which has even greater vaccine escape and even greater potential clinical um morbidity and mortality has got to be significant you know, it's not something you would want voluntarily to take a risk on. And so the idea that in somehow letting the infection run riot now, uh, we're protecting ourselves in the winter, I think is a mistake. Um, but why did I say it? You know, what, what's, what, what, what evidence was I drawing on? Because clearly the government denies it. Um, although we, as we've heard from Dawn, who I thought, by the way, was absolutely brilliant and she would get my vote anytime um probably like millions of others you know so anyway but you know the government is not known for its honesty um and so the fact that it denies that it's pursuing a herd immunity strategy is, is not really going to cut much ice so what do i think well um participating in spy b the behavioral subgroup of sage um we were asked in uh march to produce a report on how to sustain infection control behaviors to keep a lid on the infection rates uh, once we, we got to the end of the roadmap so that we no longer were relying on um, you know, these legal restrictions. And uh, I helped with that report and we sent the report in to uh, the cabinet office in April. There's, none of this is a secret. The government sat on it for quite a while and eventually it's been made public. That report was, uh, the, was the blueprint for how you can safely or relatively safely come out of the restrictions while, while keeping a lid on infection rates and it's doing and it's basically treating uh, covid like any other risk management scenario which we're all familiar with um safety on the roads for example what does it involve it doesn't just involve telling telling drivers to act responsibly that would be stupid um it involves a range of things including 
the highway code, including uh, things that people have to do, including training people to uh, be safe on the roads, including providing safety measures on the roads, making cars safer and so on. In other words, it's a, it's a risk management strategy that everyone, government, businesses, local authorities and individuals can all get involved in. And it has been successful in minimizing the or reducing the uh, deaths on the road, deaths and injuries on the road. And that's all we were suggesting. You know, there's plenty of experience in that and other areas for what you can do. And have the government done any of it? No. All they have done is to rather belatedly and in a confused and somewhat self-contradictory way say, right, it's over to you to act responsibly. So in that context, you've got to think to yourself, why? You know, why, if you really wanted to suppress uh, infection rates over the summer, why wouldn't you do any of this stuff? Okay. It's not even that expensive. Why would you just say, right, okay, we're going to let everything go and then tell people to act responsibly? And so my interpretation of that, also bearing in mind the government's track record on this and bear in mind also that, you know, in the first wave, uh, they clearly uh, had a sense of wanting to uh, sort of, uh, at least before they understood how serious it would be, and they couldn't get away with it because of hospitalizations. You know, they wanted to let it rip through the population. They thought they could get away with it. So anyway, to sum it all up, my uh, I wrote uh, in uh, The Guardian or somewhere um, uh, last year that uh, at that stage, the government was treating this public health crisis as though it was a political um, uh, crisis. and Everything that they've done since then confirms that view, that as long as they think politically that they'll be able to get away with this strategy of letting things run written and so on and blaming the public, they will do it. Um, the only thing that's going to stop them is if the public won't wear it, and I really hope we won't. It's interesting. I mean, one of the things I've written about before is how kind of over the last generation since I suppose Thatcherism, there's been a deliberate attempt to, you know, after World War II, we had this understanding of poverty and unemployment as collective problems requiring collective solutions. Thatcherism individualized those people. If poverty and unemployment could be better explained as individual behavioral defects, and therefore you withdrew, you slashed away the welfare state because that was only sustaining the bad behavior, incentivizing the bad behavior. And actually people needed a stick rather than a carrot. And that's, you know, how poverty and the say a similar approach essentially was a approach, you know, imposed in the pandemic, which is if things go wrong, it's not because of the government's collective failings and uh, all wider collective failings in society, like the underfunding of the NHS, like the failures of PPE, like the failures of test and trace, but rather these ne'er-do-wells down the road, you know, these people in the parks often using long lens cameras to make it look like people more crammed in they are, the young the young who have essentially been a cordon sanitaire to protect older people throughout this pandemic made huge sacrifices and then are demonized as somehow being responsible for anything that happens rather than the government itself. I mean, I'm just interested what, in terms of your subgroup, you're talking about it there and obviously bear with me, but what comes next in terms of that, you know, what are you advising for the next phase of the pandemic? And, And linked to that, again, the counter argument people keep making is, it's that point you made about risk, which is, well, look, at the end of the day, you can minimize risk, but you can't eliminate risk. And you have to 
juggle it with other competing risks. And we know, having had 17 months of some forms of restrictions in this country until last week, that there are huge costs, obviously, in terms of living through restrictions and people have suffered consequences of them. And eventually those costs become bigger than the potential costs of the pandemic. That's the argument and that it's about competing risks. So isn't it the case, well, look, COVID now, we've got mass immunization, particularly of vulnerable and older people. Um, we've got to relax restrictions at some point. The risks of COVID-19 have been very sizably reduced. So I suppose with that in mind, what are you advising and what's your response to those saying? Yeah. Now of COVID are so much lower. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just such nonsense. I mean, the it would be like saying, oh, well, you know, we, uh, you know, years gone past, we had loads more deaths on the roads, loads more deaths and serious injuries. And the crashes that people uh, had were massively disruptive to the economy and, and to people's lives and so on. And we didn't say, well, you know, you've got to get around, haven't you? Uh, you know, so, um, you know, what can you do? Uh, you know, it's, uh, we just got to get on with it. We didn't do that because that would be stupid. Uh, what we did was progressively uh, build and improve and develop and improve and develop and improve a safety culture and a risk management strategy on our roads as we have in work sites, as we have in other areas, so that yes, living with COVID does not mean cowering to COVID and it doesn't mean letting COVID run rip through the community because the damage that COVID will do if allowed to run rip through the community is way greater than anything you know, that you would, uh, that could happen because of a risk management strategy. So the risk management strategy that we proposed and that, are, you know, if anyone from the government, you know, <laughs> I'd be surprised if they were listening, but maybe they could hear about it, you know, go and look at what Spy B um, wrote and have a look and see what you can put in place. That risk management strategy is not disruptive of uh, people's lives. It's about things like getting places uh, uh, properly ventilated. It's about providing proper investment and incentive schemes so that businesses, uh, public spaces and so on can be as safe as they can be. It's about, about providing effective communication with the public so that they know what they need to do in what situation, when they need to do it, uh, um, and why they need to do it. It's not hard but uh, that's the sort of thing, and it's not disruptive. In fact, the disruptive thing, as we're seeing, is that uh, if you just let the virus rip, then you've got hundreds of thousands of people having to isolate. That is causing huge disruption. So then you say, oh, well, well, let's, let's not make them isolate. You know, let's, uh, let's just see, uh, you know, how we can go, because actually that, that's more disruptive than letting the virus get rid. Well, good luck with that, because you're not just looking at people who are being sick and hospitalised, you're looking at potential long-term, I haven't brought up long COVID, and neither have I brought up the uh, potential longer-term cognitive and other complications from COVID. You're taking a massive risk with our economy. For what? For what? All you need to do is uh, to implement a risk management strategy of the kind that we use in other areas. So it seems willful to me, willful not to do that. Um, some of our eagle-eyed uh, viewers and listeners have noticed, of course, you, you referred uh, 
indirectly to Sajid Javid, the health secretary, who has now deleted his tweet in which he said that we needed to live with the virus, not cower. And uh, he said, I've deleted a tweet which used the word cower. I was expressing gratitude. No, you weren't. That the vaccines help us fight back as a society. But it was a poor choice of word, and I sincerely apologize. Like many, I've lost loved ones. So this awful virus will never, never minimize its impact. I mean, regardless, actually, I mean, he's obviously regrets the backlash it's caused. Um, but actually, it was indicative of the government's approach, which is to let the virus essentially let rip through the population and to not do so is seen as weak and we're cow- cowering before that. I mean, it's just, it's insulting to those of us, uh, you know, to everyone who's lost relatives in, in this crisis. In terms of what individuals do to act responsibly, um, given the circumstances we're in, what would you say? Well, I, I also um, help with uh, Independent Sage, uh, which is complementary to Sage. It was never set up as a, as a, in any way, in opposition to Sage, but very much complementary to it. And Independent Sage, as you know, and you know, plays a huge role in trying to do the job that we were hoping the government would do about informing the public. And one of the things that we're doing at the moment is taking this SPI-B report and then um, developing a sort of uh, COVID safe code, a bit like the highway case. So, so okay, if if other people aren't going to take their responsibility, if government's not going to take its responsibility seriously, what can you do as an individual? What can we do as individuals to keep ourselves safe, as safe as we can, um, and uh, and other people around us? And um, you know, th- there are a number of things, and each one of those requires uh, you know a little bit of knowledge and a bit of understanding. Um, but probably the single most important thing is is understanding what what your risks are when and where, um, so uh, and what you can do about it. So, for example, given that fewer people now uh, around me in public areas are wearing face masks, I will now be wearing in situations where I think the risk is higher uh, an FFP3 or FFP2 mask, but one which gives me a higher level of protection. So um, if you can do that, then, you know, wearing masks to give yourself uh, yourself more protection in situations which are high risk, which is not walking out on Hampstead Heath, for example. Um, things like uh, obviously maintaining uh, your, your hand washing and so on, because we mustn't forget that fomite or contact transmission is still probably a thing, although aerosol transmission seems to be most important. Um, Things like judging um, what your what events and what things you're going to attend. So my poor, um, uh, 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 a very good friend of mine who was incredibly careful for you know throughout the whole pandemic, let her guard down once and went to a wedding and got COVID. And so uh, recognizing what the level of risk is and what you're going to do. Are, how are you going to act in those situations? There's a lot we can do, and we'll, we will, at Independence Age, I think, will be providing more advice on that. But um, it's more than just, you know, in some general sense, acting responsibly. It's about knowing what you need to do when um, and, and why. Just a couple of other things. One, in terms of where are we at, basically, with the pandemic. So if I look at the government's <laughs> um, dashboard, um covid positive tests over the last week it looks superficially like good news because we've seen a dramatic surge down by about four and a half percent so yesterday about 31 
well, 31,795 tested positive. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens with so-called Freedom Day. I'm one of those statistics. I'm a Freedom Day so-called statistic um, as that over the coming days. But also the issue, as I've said, about are lots of people now refusing to get tested. Deaths have gone up, unfortunately, by 57.5%. We're now to 86 yesterday. So that's clearly markedly gone up from where we were. Still much lower, of course, than where we were in January, where about 2,000 people officially were dying a day. In terms of patients, and of course, this is important because of the NHS and the pressures on the NHS, that in the last week has gone up by over a quarter. So it's nearly 1,000, it's about nearly 917 um, patients yesterday. Uh, you know, well, we'll see, and, and on that as well, I'd be interested to know, it's been said that a lot of those stays are actually shorter stays because people often are vaccinated. So if they are requiring hospitalisation, <coughs> despite being vaccinated, their illness is less um, severe and therefore their stay is, is anyway, what do you just, what do you think about those general statistics and where? Yeah, what's going on? Um, so it's, it, it's, it, it's a little hard to say because um, the, uh, those statistics you cited about the, the, uh, the, the uh, PCR positive or test positive rates having gone down in the last week, um, are surprising um, and a bit of an anomaly. Um, infection rates, are probably the best measure of infection rates across the home nations uh, is the ONS infection survey. So if, if any one of your viewers doesn't know about that, then just put ONS infection survey and you'll see. And, and the, the reason why that is the best uh, uh, sort of marker of infections is because it's a random sample. It's not reliant on people coming forward and so on. Um, so now that is still going up and that is still going up uh, rapidly, um, but that's always a week or so out of date. So we, so we will know probably next week whether this uh, apparent drop that we've got um, in the PCR tests, the daily stats, uh, is an artifact uh, of people, fewer people coming forward to be tested because uh, COVID's become more normalised, and so they're saying, well, and also they're disincentivized from being tested because uh, of the consequences in terms of getting back to work and so on. So it could be that. Um, I mean, the, the best thing in the world would be if somehow we had got to a stage where um, we had acquired a sufficient level of immunity through vaccination and uh, and past infection to start to bring this down. But I have to say, Sage did not model that. No, none of the epidemiologists uh, that I know have modelled anything like a peak until probably late August or September. So it would be surprising if that if that drop were real. I ha yeah, maybe it is, and the virus has thrown all sorts of you know uh, curveballs at us. But um, uh, it would be great if it were. But it, it it seems you know quite likely to me that it's an artifact of fewer people getting tested. We'll see. Just before I ask the final question, um, just a couple of questions that I've had. Um, just kind of interesting medical questions. One from Tajiz Campwell. One of the things I've heard is evidence points to a longer six to eight week distance between jabs provides better long-term protection from the vaccine. Is that true? And Foxglove asked, do you think the testing of positive cases has gone down because the NHS listed COVID symptoms are out of date for Delta? I'm quite interested in that because actually one of the things I noticed is uh, yesterday I did have a so everyone can know how to block nose. 
and and I didn't. I remember that wasn't initial. That wasn't listed as the original symptoms of of COVID nineteen, which is obviously, I'm afraid to say, changed and transformed. As we know, it's far more infectious, but the symptoms have changed as well. So you know, are people now? Because actually, it's quite bewildering. Because you know, for people, the signature, you know, people think loss of taste and smell i don't have that fever i don't actually have a fever i don't my temperature is normal to be honest uh in my case i have basically a slightly blocked nose and a slight respiratory illness and i feel rough hmm. so i mean is that part of the problem that people you know with symptoms so i'm just interested in that and the vaccine the gap the vaccine gap question yeah um i, I mean it's a really good question that i mean both of them are really good questions so let's do the second one first um that you know, that, that does sound quite plausible, except why would that have just sort of kicked in in the last week or so? Um, I'm not sure. I think if that were the case, then that would have, we'd have seen that a bit earlier, you know, once Delta became the dominant, um, uh, the dominant um, variant. So it, I wouldn't rule it out, um, but, um, and then maybe it's synergistic with other things. Like if you've got, uh, you know, if you haven't got what seem to be the classic symptoms, if you look at the NHS website, which really does need updating, um, but if you haven't got the classic symptoms and you're disinclined to get to get a test because of the consequences of that, uh, then maybe those two are working together. It's a bit hard to say. Um, I, I'd, prob I'd probably doubt it. But the first thing is a really interesting point, and actually. Uh, I was talking about this to um, a friend, Raja, I was playing tennis this morning. Um, uh, and by the way, he came up with a very good phrase for um, what the leader leadership of the uh, opposition uh, seemed to be doing. And he, what did he call it? Um, bystander politics or something. Love it. Thank you. That'll be in a column. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, because they're not really doing anything. It's basically down to dawn and, you know, and some, you know, brave souls to... Uh, to pick up the cudgels but uh, anyway so going back to the issue of um uh the you know how long to uh what's the best sort of time between vaccines so the original idea and the, the randomized trials set four weeks as their as their figure by, by and large what happened with the astrazeneca trial was that um because of uh, um some problems with the trial um a, a significant subsample um uh, were had to had to wait twelve weeks. Now they also only had half dose for the first dose, but those people seem to do better than the people in the main body of the trial. Um, so, uh, so I think the government felt uh, it was okay. It would probably be okay. And looking at the immunology and the virology and so on, they thought it was a risk worth taking to extend it from four weeks to twelve weeks. But it was always going to be four weeks. That was the idea. Now. Um, since then, we don't, you know, we've got observational evidence, not terrifically good uh, randomized controlled trial evidence on the optimal dose. But I mean, the long and the short of it is that uh, we don't really know. I mean, four weeks worked pretty well in the randomized trials. Um, it, we think it's not too damaging to go a bit further with the mRNA vaccines. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, it seems to be perfectly fine to go to 12 weeks. Um, but if, you know, I, I think if someone said to me, you've got to have it at four weeks, you've got to have it at six weeks, you've got to have it at 12 weeks, I'd probably have it earlier rather than later because you get the second dose in earlier. Um, but um, I don't think there's a lot in it.
Just finally, the risk posed by anti-vax and anti I mean, anti-lockdown, what are they protesting about? There's no lockdown anyway. And I mean, I've certainly been, I can see my, my own mentions. I keep getting, we're dealing, people are saying, obviously on YouTube, we have anti-vaxxers, just so everyone knows we are blocking them. Sorry, we have to distinct, we have to be, we, we try not to block people unless, you know, one of our tests is if they're anti-vaxxers because they are spreading dangerous and objectively untrue misinformation. But just to give you, you know, yesterday, on Saturday, that is, they are very disturbing, very disturbing speeches at a rally. It included the former nurse, uh, Kate Shemirani, who has been struck off uh, last June or in June. She said COVID vaccines are satanic, citing the pattern 060606. Uh, a former Brexit politician, uh, a former London Assembly member, David Curtin, saying they're not vaccines, experimental injections. MPs are doing the bidding of evil. Some wacky German lawyer. These vaccinations are experimental gene therapies. Half a million being killed by them in the US. Um, that anti-5G activists were there. The virus is a hoax. This is domestic terrorism and genocide. Uh, Casey Hopkins was predictably there, telling people to rub themselves up against each other. David Icke's son saying, talking about the great reset stuff, which has become one of their signature uh, lines. A former uh, GP, obviously, shouldn't be taken seriously. Vernon Coleman manufactured fake COVID 19 is just the flu rebranded. Uh, Piers Corbyn, unfortunately, was also there. You're much more likely to die, get ill from the jab than you are from COVID. I mean, obviously, I should say this is all nonsense, and I'm just giving David Icke, they, David Icke was there. Demons have persuaded millions to believe in their plan and global tyranny. Quite disturbing speeches, but including Kate, the the nurse, former nurse, not a nurse anymore, uh, Kate Shemirani, who spoke about the Nuremberg trials, in which doctors and nurses who'd um, been accomplices, obviously, of Nazi tyranny, were hanged, um, and and said that doctors and nurses should get off the bus now. Very menacing stuff, indeed. Whipping up murderous hatred against the people who carried this country through its darkest hours since World War Two. I mean, how serious is this? Because we know the polling shows actually anti-vax sentiment in Britain is actually very low compared to other countries, um, but it's still there. Um, I mean, how serious is it? They're very vocal, obviously, online. They're vocal when they do their protests. Um, but, and you can see often what happens, like any conspiracy theorists, they they prey on vulnerable people online who've gone through a very difficult time, as we all, as the country has people in, in different ways um, and they prey on that with misinformation and people go down rabbit holes i mean how how serious do you think it is how worried should we be about it at this stage i, th I think it's a, it's a significant issue as you rightly say um uh, it's far less of an issue in this country than it is in some other countries and uh, and yeah, thank goodness for that um i think that that, that the uh the People themselves, and obviously they get platforms now to, you know, uh, to pr propagate their views, um, have potentially a, a, a direct damaging effect, which is probably intended, on the morale of people who are trying to do their very best to, uh, you know, to keep the country safe and to treat people. And, you know, it is heartbreaking to see... Uh, doctors and nurses, clinicians, people working in the health service of, of all kinds who are distressed when they see this kind of um, uh, attack 
and uh, and my my message to them is don't don't be distressed i mean because these people don't waste your emotional energy on these people just bear in mind that you know how many how many of these people anti-vaxxers have have up till the current moment been rational normal sort of people who evaluate evidence and speak in you know reasonable terms in com you know in their conversations about things uh, how many of them actually were like that and then and then because they've analyzed the situation with regard to vaccines and covid in a very careful way looking at all the pros and cons they've come to the view that vaccines are dangerous and so on the answer is probably very few if any that, you know, you, what you have always is a group of people who have a proclivity to take this particular stance for whatever reason, and thank, thankfully it's not, there's not many of them. But um, the other risk, I think, and I have seen this, is that um, not through what they say, because you know, people know that they're not ready to be trusted, but someone then repeats something and then someone repeats that, and you get some of this message sort of filtering through to, uh, people who aren't anti-vaxxers and who are just wanting to find, you know, make judgments, make a you know, decisions in a, a highly complex scenario, and that they are affected, and and that's a larger group of people. And I think this again is where the government had to do and has to do a lot more to counter these arguments by being open, honest, transparent, not glossing over the dangers and the risks and all the side effects and things like that but by, by saying the risk benefit analysis is this this is what we think it's your choice and uh, i think if you treat people in that way then fewer people are going to be taken in by this sort of small group of people who who spread these um uh, misinformation and I, I should be clear because it's come up in the comments when i said the anti-5g activist mark Steele, i don't mean the brilliant comedian <laughs> Mark Steele, who definitely is not a conspiracy theorist. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, it's Mark Steele spelled with an E at the end as well. So just to be very, very... Imagine I got sued by my own friend. Um, Mark Steele is not an anti-vaxxer, the comedian. This is a different Mark Steele with an E on the end. Anyway, just thought I'd, I'd clarify that. And yeah, and just before, I, I, uh, you know, this has been absolutely brilliant, by the way. The comments we've had have been just absolutely overwhelmingly just... Um, so grateful uh, because of your insights and your wisdom. Uh, we've been very lucky to have you. Somebody at the end just says about, Quint Wolf says about the mainstream media BBC ignoring comparison with other countries like uh, Vietnam, for example, normalizing how bad the UK government response really is. Uh, it, absolutely true. And Vietnam had tremendous success, though it is now, I think, a, a tragic point that needs to be said that because of the nature of the vaccine being, con the vaccines being used in richer countries, a very big tragedy is those poorer countries, which have done so often phenomenally well throughout this pandemic, they don't have vaccine protection. Their cases are now going up because the Delta strain is so infectious and they are now suffering the consequences of the failures of other countries, plus the fact that vaccines are being hoarded in rich countries. I just think that's worth worth pointing out. With absolutely, you. absolutely spot on. Um, thank you so, so much, um, Professor. You've been as I've said, absolutely brilliant. Very lucky to have you. A real educational tour de force there. And uh, thank you so much. Really well, it's, it's a really great pleasure. And you're doing a great job, Owen. And I really do hope that you feel better and you don't get a dip uh, this afternoon. Yeah, I feel I, I, I have I felt a bit rougher towards the end, but I'm sure I'll be fine. I'm not going to get a violin out. I'm powering through. But thank Take you. It easy. 
I will. I'll take it easy. All right. Take care, buddy. Take care. Um, two brilliant guests. Very, very lucky to have them. Um, just before I wrap up, there's something I did want to say, actually, and I will probably be grouchier about this than, well, I mean, not grouchy. I deserve to be angry about it. We should be angry about it. And um, the, I, I, I obviously spoke about this last week and this was about the death of, um, of Dawn Foster, who was a brilliant young left-wing journalist, died in her early thirties and after a long illness. And, uh, for those of us who've known Dawn, I've known her for a, a decade. Um, obviously, this was an extremely distressing event. And it's been so heartwarming to see so many people online who've been so touched by Dawn's work. Uh, she covered so many issues, injustices uh, co committed by the government. She spoke truth to power. She didn't take any bullshit. Um, and, you know the response from people who've been touched by her work, I think has been really incredible. The reason I am bringing this up and, you know, someone said there's an argument to ignore it, that I don't agree with that, is that the um, Times columnist Giles Corran relished in her death, tweeted, did two tweets. Uh, one, basically, the first one saying, like, I hope she burns in hell. The other saying, ha, 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 kind of thing. Um, arguing because what he, that he'd, she'd slighted him and his family. And actually what all she'd done is uh, allude in a very gentle way, actually, on Twitter to the fact uh, that um, he has a famous father and the nature of the media industry in terms of people with privileged connections. And that was sufficient for him to relish the death of a young working class female writer who died suddenly after a long illness. Absolutely disgusting. Uh, I don't think I have any words to describe uh, my sheer disgust at this. And it is indicative of something broader. Now, the reason I'll say this is because partly of that, because, um, you might have expected, given a senior Times columnist, it's like one of the flagship columnists at the Times, also does their Times radio station, though to be fair, about three people listen to that, but is, you know, on the beat, he's a BBC presenter. I mean, imagine I'd done that. About, I mean, a, a, you know, a young woman, maybe she was a centrist or a right-wing columnist, died after... A, like, I would be correctly hounded out. I'd be sacked like that, by the way. But I'd be hounded out of public life in disgrace, correctly. And I think what's so, for me, repulsive is barely anybody in the media said anything about this. Like, I mean, those of us on the left have, but everybody else, they know, they saw the tweets. His colleagues saw the tweets. Everyone knows about the tweets. They haven't said anything. Someone today in the Times has finally alluded to it and called his tweets misguided. Oh, no, ill-considered, sorry, ill-considered, I think. Ill-considered relishing the death of a young woman because you were so affronted by her pointing out your privilege. And that's the point I was going to make, actually. Because, look, you know, Dawn was clearly disliked by a lot of people within the mainstream media ecosystem for a few reasons. Firstly, because she got there despite having no connections, no privilege, a working-class young woman with all the odds stacked against her, and disproportionately, the media 
is drawn from privileged backgrounds. It's just statistically a fact in terms of the national media. Disproportionate in terms of people, in terms of you can see the number of surnames, famous surnames of columnists with privileged families. That's just a fact. Like, unless you're a social Darwinian, you think, well, actually, the most privileged people are the best. Then obviously you realize that that clearly isn't based on talent, that there is a large degree of privilege at play. Odds stacked in some people's um, favor from birth, odds stacked against others also from birth, <laughs> conception, arguably. Now, the other re- there's other reasons. She called out the mainstream media for its bullshit. She called out its privilege. She called out its failings. They didn't like that. They don't like it. They hate so many. The great journalists out there, by the way. Not all journalists. Hashtag. Well, come on. I don't think we have to go down that route, do we? But it is the case that we have a media which all too often punches down, demonizes minorities, doesn't hold the powerful to account. Much of the press acts as the partisan wing PR department, the propaganda wing of the conservative government. She called all that out. She called out people in the media. She called them out for their often servile nature to the government, including during the pandemic, in which people have needlessly died in their tens of thousands, partly because the media didn't do their job in, in many cases. Exceptions, but in many, many cases. She had other causes she was very passionate about, trans rights, supporting trans rights within the media ecosystem in Britain, where transphobia has become a cult, frankly. A, frankly, when I see anti-vaxxers and anti-trans activists, they're occasionally an overlap. I've noticed in my own mentions, the same people, radicalized online, often vulnerable, but radicalized online, gone down various rabbit holes, parroting the same nonsense. And she stood for trans people and trans rights. That was a rare thing to do in the mainstream media. And they obviously hated for it. So what they've done is they've gone, oh, well, Giles Cobbin has said these terrible things about her because he was so affronted by his own privilege being questioned. And that's the other point. Because do you know what? If it comes to it and actually media, like senior figures in, in the media industry want to kick off about something, oh, they will. I know that. Because whenever I have spoken out about the privileged nature of so much of the British media, all about its problems with groupthink and so on, then I get for the next week half the bloody blue ticks, and yes, I am also a blue tick, not a blue tick, should we go down that route? Half the blue ticks of the British media piling in as though I've essentially gone up to their mothers and told them to go F themselves. That's how angry they get. So they'll get angry when privilege is called out. They'll get angry when the failings of the mainstream media are called out. Furious. But when a Times journalist relishes the death of a young working class journalist because she had the temerity to suggest that his privilege had something to do with his position, nothing, almost nothing, zero, silence. I think the only newspaper that covered it is The National, a pro-independence outlet in Scotland. Because as far as they're concerned, Relishing the deaths of, as I've said, a young working class woman who dared to question privilege is the worst. And just think about Giles Corrin, as others have pointed out, he's not even the most talented Corrin in his own family. Whilst Dawn Foster had to defy odds, which Giles Corrin could never even imagine. And I know Giles Corrin, classic cry bully, you know, he once deleted his Twitter account because he wrote some gratuitous homophobic stuff about me where he said I would end up being an old lord chasing after tight-arsed researchers and then claimed my fans had turned up to his house. Nonsense. 
Um, and then, oh, I'm the victim, I'm the victim. That's what they do. That's what they do. That's what these people do. Cry bullies. I have called it out. And the reason it's important to do this is not just because of Giles Corrin, who's a pitiful excuse for a human being, uh, whose behavior online would have ended most of the journalists if they didn't have the odds stacked in his favor and his political opinions. Um, but because of what it says about the media, the silence. Because as I've said, angry about privilege being called out than they are about a young working-class journalist having her death mocked. Sorry to end on that note. Um, it's been great to have, as I've said, two brilliant, brilliant guests who've been absolutely fantastic. Um, do, as I've said, those of you support the show, in fact, I need to read out uh, those of you who've been absolutely brilliant in supporting us through Super Chat. That's people watching through YouTube for those listening to the podcast. John McKenzie, Shane Tomblin, Kieran Buckley, Fridge Freezer, Terena Amadi Parker, Max Madonna, Attila Desix, Rach AEL, Anne Hayfield, Tadeusz Campwell, a regular, TBC, Fox Glove, another, Quint Wolf, David Baratta, who says Dawn Foster was a hero and I hope she serves as an inspiration for more young working class folks to become journalists. This country needs more working class journalists. Amen, David. There are far too few people like Dawn. And that the thing is, when we say that was an irreplaceable loss with Dawn, we mean literally an irreplaceable loss because there's nobody like her left. Uh, Carolyn Westlake, in memory of Dawn Foster, we need more strong women like her to fight this patriarchal privilege. Absolutely amen. Her feminism was at the absolute core of who she was. Um, and that legacy must be that we continue to fight and all the causes that she believed in. Um, to support the show, the documentaries we've got planned when I'm not infectious with a deadly illness, um, do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. You keep the team doing the amazing job they do because I obviously don't have the ability to do that. Um, do press, if you're watching on YouTube, press like and subscribe. If you're on the podcast, then do give us five stars if you like the show, please, uh, and subscribe. Um, I'm now going to go and take myself. I might go and watch some. I'm going to finish watching. I know I'm going to go finish watching May Martin's the brilliant, brilliant Netflix dra um, uh, comedy show, Feel Good. If you haven't watched it, do watch it. That's how I'm going to now going to get a nice cup of tea and lunch and watch that. And um, yeah, hopefully feel, um, as I've said, thanks to our vaccination program, I'm sure I would be, my risk of being iller than I am is much lower. And even though I feel rough, uh, it could be a lot worse. Uh, do go and get your shots if you haven't, everybody. Um, that's what's going to get us out of this nightmare in, in large part. Cheers, everyone. Lots of love. We'll be, uh, we've got loads of interviews this week to come, including how Hollywood and the Pentagon have directly collaborated. This is a really fascinating video. Really looking forward to do that. We'll have our documentary soon. Thanks for your support on Patreon on Who Owns Britain, which is going to be a really interesting documentary. Um, but we'll be back live next Sunday at 12 o'clock where I will be less brain foggy, hopefully, uh, but still in self-isolation. Lots of love, everybody. Take care of yourself and I will see you then. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you got a lot out of that. I certainly did. Um, do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. Help us decide which documentaries we do, who we speak to, that kind of thing. Or use the support function uh, to keep the team uh, doing their amazing work. Um, I will speak to you soon. Uh, take care. Lots of love.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.